to invite you to take out your copy of Scripture and turn to the 23rd Psalm as we continue our way working through this poem in prayer this morning. We find ourselves in the fifth verse, the, the first half of the fifth verse this morning. But we're going to read the whole psalm as it gives us a sort of wider context of what the psalmist is saying here. As we read, let's listen with reverence and joy to the word of our God. He writes, or he speaks to the psalmist David, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, let the reading and proclamation of your word be anointed. The presence and power of the Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I think one of my favorite uh, scenes in The Lord of the Rings takes place early in the first book, uh, The Fellowship of the Ring. In it, the four hobbits, Frodo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin, are, are making their way through uh, a place called the Old Forest. The Old Forest is a, a kind of magical but evil forest. Uh, the trees seem to be alive with a sort of dreadful and malicious power, which was said to overcome those who travel through it. Something the hobbits learned was all too true. And so as they, they traveled through, uh, they, they could almost begin to kind of feel the, the threatening plans the trees were, were contriving. Uh, they, they didn't see the sun for quite some time. Uh, they began to, to be filled with a sense of inner dread and terror. They started feeling very sleepy. And even to the point where uh, several of them began to fall asleep. All of these things were, were things they knew were the forest doing, but they couldn't quite explain it. And Frodo fell asleep only, after, only to be uh, awakened a few moments later by a, a terrifying nightmare, but what he awoke to find was actually much worse. One of the trees had uh, consumed Pippin with its massive roots, and Mary was, was on his way to meeting the same fate. And so Frodo and Sam, they begin to try everything at their disposal to try to free uh, Pippin and Mary, they, they start to beat against the roots of the tree. They get out their axe. They light a fire at the foot of the tree. But each endeavor only made the tree more angry and therefore only made matters worse. And so finally, feeling, 
feeling hopeless, Frodo began to just cry out into the force, not, not knowing quite why he was doing so or who he was crying to or, or what he was asking for, but he started crying out, help, help, help. And then quite to his, his surprise, Frodo actually received an answer. It was an odd answer, though. It was a, a sort of song of gibberish. Hey, doll, Mary doll, ring-a-dong-a-dillo, ring-a-dong, hop-along, fall-la-the-willow. Tom Bomb, Jolly Tom, Pom, Tom Bombadillo. It was Tom, Badil, uh, Tom Bombadil. It was Tom Bombadil coming to the rescue. Now, if you've only seen the movies, you wouldn't be uh, uh, familiar with uh, Tom Bombadil, but he's this, this mysterious but kind of jolly figure who is the, the kind of lord of the old forest. And as such, he, he knew just what was needed. So he, he comes to their rescue. He, he actually sings this strange song to this tree. And then he commands it to release Pippin and Mary. And then just a few minutes later, the, the hobbits, the four hobbits, were breathlessly thanking Tom for his, his timely rescue. But then that's not all. Next, Tom actually invites them to his home. He laughs and he says to them, well, my little fellows, you shall come with me. The table is all laden with yellow cream, honeycomb, and white bread and butter. Time enough for questions around the dinner table. Follow me as quickly as you're able. Just a short time later, they arrived at Tom's doorstep where they were greeted by his daughter, Goldberry, who says to them, laugh and be merry, friends. Let us shut out the night, for you are still afraid, perhaps, of mist and tree shadows and deep water and untamed things. Fear nothing, for tonight you are under the roof of Tom Bombadil. And they went inside, and they found the table spread and prepared, just as Tom said, and they feasted safely in Tom's house in the middle of that evil and magical forest. Now, I know Tolkien was no fan of allegory, but something tells me that uh, it's not quite a, an accident or a coincidence that this part of the story illustrates something so, so patent and potent about our faith, that our God is one who is fierce in his fighting for his people, but also warm in his welcome to us. And that's the, 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 the very idea and reality that we see in our text this morning, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, the big idea that we find here is that the Lord treats his people like a gracious host treats his honored guests. The Lord treats his people like a gracious host treats his honored guests. And as we explore this, this text, we, we find here such a rich and, and textured metaphor. It's, it's a metaphor pregnant with meaning. And, 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 and as we explore it, we're going to see that in it, we see that the Lord welcomes us, the Lord serves us, and the Lord exalts us. The Lord welcomes us, the Lord serves us, and the Lord exalts us. Well, first we see how the Lord welcomes us. And to start with, I don't want to merely look at uh, our particular strophe, our particular line in verse 5a, uh, but I want to look at all of verses 5 and 6 because at this point in the poem, there's a kind of, a, there's a kind of abrupt change in metaphor. David writes, he says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And you might be able to tell there's a, there's a new metaphor at work here. Uh, David is, is no longer thinking in terms of, of a shepherd and flock. He's no longer, uh, he's, he's no longer taking us through the, the green pastures and the still waters and the shadows of the valley. He's hanging up the rod and the staff. 
And now here we, we find ourselves in a house, in a banquet hall, around a, a table, around a feast. He switched the, the metaphor from a shepherd and his sheep to a host and his guest. Before David was saying, the Lord is my shepherd and I am his covenant sheep. But here he's saying, the Lord is my gracious host and I am his honored guest. Now here David is saying, the Lord has welcomed me into his house as the guest of honor. This is, this is shown in, in, in that he is invited into the Lord's house where he has provided a feast, where his head is anointed with oil, which was in those days something often expected for a, an honored dinner guest. Uh, he fills my cup with wine until it's overflowing. I am his guest and he has welcomed me into his house forever. And of course, if you know something of, of Middle Eastern hospitality, uh, you, you would know how much this kind of hospitality was a sort of cultural value in David's context and in David's day. Uh, if you happen to show up at a friend's house or even a stranger's house, um, this kind of hospitality wasn't a welcome surprise. It was an expectation. Uh, it was a, a cultural value and virtue so common that that you could presume that you would be welcomed in such a way if you showed up at anyone's house, whether invited or not. You, you might think of uh, Genesis 18 as an example of this. When, when three strangers show up at Abraham's tent when he was dwelling in the oaks of, of Mamre, Abraham was resting in his tent, and it was the hottest part of the day, and so he was, he was resting inside of his tent trying to get out of that uh, midday sun. And then all of a sudden, he looks up and he sees three men in front of his tent. And so what does he do? He, he runs to his tent door. He bows before them and, and he welcomes them and he rushes around like a madman trying to get them food and trying to make them feel comfortable. And of course, we, we go on to learn in the story that, that in welcoming his visitors, Abraham was actually welcoming none other than God himself. But then part of what's so astounding here in Psalm 23 is that David is saying that this is how the Lord has welcomed him. This is a picture, this this picture of hospitality and the likes of Genesis 18 is actually not just a picture of the way Abraham welcomes God, but is actually a picture of how God has welcomed David into his house. But then what's even more astounding as we turn to consider what this means for us is, is the good news for us this morning that the Lord has not only done this for David, But he's done this for all who trust in his son. In fact, we can lay claim to God's welcome in in ways more profoundly clear and intimate today than even David could in his day. David David knew the welcome of God into his house, which was the, the, the tabernacle in the midst of Israel. But we have been welcomed into that which the tabernacle pointed to. The tabernacle was only a shadow of what we've been welcomed into. We have been welcomed into unbreakable union and communion with God's only Son. We have been welcomed into the church, which is His house and body. We've been welcomed into a deeper and more intimate fellowship with God by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And so here's something that I I, I want you to be mindful of in light of this, Christian. I want you to remember this. I want you to remember this very clear. God wants you. Christian, God wants you wants you. Let that sink in for a moment. Do you believe that God wants you? Yes, he knows about your past. Yes, he he knows about your besetting sins. Yes, he, he knows the thoughts and intents of your heart. 
And yet, if you have trusted in his son, he has welcomed you into his household. He wants you. His heart is desirous of you. You know, you you may not be wanted anywhere else. You may not be wanted in your family. You may not be wanted by a lover. You may not be wanted anywhere else, but you are wanted here and by him. The price he paid, the, the coming of the Lord Jesus, his suffering, his death is proof of it. You're wanted by him, and he's fully prepared the way for you to be welcomed into his house forever. But the next we see that not only does he welcome us into his house, and if that were not significant enough, as we dwell in his house, he serves us. He serves us. Look with me, secondly, at how the Lord serves us. Giving a little more focus in our particular verse this morning, David writes, you prepare a table before me. Now, when he, he mentions a table here, he, he's speaking about a, a dining table. He's speaking about a, a banquet, a feast that has been spread before him in the banquet hall of the Lord's house. But then what's more is that David not only speaks of the Lord providing him with this, this feast, this table of this sort, but he says that the Lord prepares a table before him. To say that the, the Lord prepares this table means to say that he's the one who made the food. He's the one who set the table. He laid out all the, the plates and napkins and utensils. He, he's poured the drinks. He's the one who prepared this feast like the cook and who served it like the waiter. And of course, those of us who, who, who are zealous for, for God's glory and supremacy might, might immediately be a little offended at the idea that, that God serves us as weak and sinful humanity. Doesn't, doesn't that belittle him? And of course, it, it would if in calling God the servant of his people that we would then conclude that we are his masters. But that's not the way the Lord is the servant of his people. He doesn't serve us because we're masters over him, but, but because we're weak and sinful in need of his divine aid. A good picture of this might, uh, might uh, come from a, a beloved TV show, Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey uh, in Downton Abbey, the, the Lord Grantham is the Lord of this early uh, 20th century abbey, which is filled with servants attending to the needs of his family. There's a butler, and there are footmen and housemaids and ladies' maids, and there's the cook, Mrs. Patmore. And now, at, at one point in the series, Mrs. Uh, Patmore is suffering from severe cataracts uh, to the point where she can barely see a thing, which is not a good thing for uh, a cook. And it all comes to a head one night when she accidentally mixes salt into the after-dinner dessert at a huge party. It was disastrous. And so she becomes distraught. She's uh, assuming she's going to get fired. She's going to live a life of desolation because she has no way to provide for herself. She has no one to take care of her. And yet Lord Grantham, instead of firing her and sending her off to live a life of, of poverty and desolation, he, he pities her. And he descends to the, the kitchen downstairs and he, he serves her. Instead of firing her, he actually sends her to, to London to have surgery to remove the cataracts. And, and on top of continuing to pay her as the cook at Downton Abbey, he actually pays for the surgery and for the subsequent hospital care as she recovers. And then eventually she returns to the house and continues her employment as the cook of Downton Abbey. Well, that's the kind of picture, it's the kind of picture of the, the sort of servant that our God is. We are not his masters, he is our Lord and our master. 
But because of our, our helplessness and need, he, he pities us, he condescends to us, he takes care of us, he serves us. And we see this most clearly in the person and work of Jesus, don't we? As Paul tells us in Philippians 2, he's the God-man who, though being in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to take advantage of. But, but instead, he took the form of a servant and being found in human form, he died the most humiliating death, death on a cross for us and for our salvation. As Jesus says of himself in Mark 10, 45, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He's the one who washed his disciples' feet. He's the one who stripped down to his underwear and took the towel and the basin. He's the one who died naked on a cross for the penalty of our sins. And so something I want you to see here then is that, that the necessary condition though for us to be served in this way by God is to take that posture, that the same kind of posture Mrs. Patmore took to recognize our helplessness and our need before him. You need to be humbled before him before you are served by him. As the hymn says, the only fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Have you, have you come to grips with the sinfulness of your sin? Have you, have you recognized your helplessness to save yourself? Have you, have you recognized the the, the, the helplessness you have to save yourself by your own good works and your righteousness, the inadequacies of your own good works and righteousness? Have you felt the desperation of your need for his divine condescension and pity? In the kingdom of God, only the hungry are fed, only the sick are healed, only the needy are served by God. And if you feel your need of him, then therefore... There's good news for you this morning. God has provided everything needful for your rescue and acceptance in his son. If you're guilty in him, there's forgiveness. If you're ashamed, he is your cleansing. If you're weary and weak, he is your strength. If, you're, if your heart is restless, he is your rest. If you're broken and wounded, he is your healing. If you're hopeless, he is your everlasting life. In everything, Christ is the provision for God's needy people. He is the feast and banquet prepared for us. He is, his flesh is our food and his blood is our drink. The only thing needed for us to receive him is to be humbled in our need before God. And if we're humbled before him, then he invites us into his house and around his table. And it's there that he exalts us as his honored guests. This brings us lastly to look at how the Lord exalts us. The Lord exalts his people. And David says that the Lord not only prepares a table before him, but the Lord does this in the presence of his enemies. Of course, of all those who might be present in the Lord's banqueting hall, you wouldn't expect to find one's enemies there. But David says his enemies are present. And now it's not exactly clear as to the, the nature of his enemy's presence therein. And David could be alluding to a kind of victory banquet. A victory banquet in the ancient Near East would be celebrated after a king achieved victory in battle. And sometimes prisoners of the opposing side would be present as, as captives. Perhaps David is, is saying that his enemies are present in such a capacity. The Lord has defeated them and they're 
present at this feast as, as captives looking on as the Lord honors David as his guest. Or it's possible that David's enemies are pictured as being present in a more kind of a subversive but peaceful capacity. Uh, we know that many times throughout David's reign as king, there were people in his royal court and, and even in his own family who had secretly conspired against David and conspired against him as the king. And, and, and yet even still, he says that the Lord treats me as his honored guest while my enemies look on. Perhaps that's what he means. Either way, the, the idea here is that David's enemies are, are, are there witnessing the way the Lord welcomes him and serves him and feeds him. This is David's way of saying that the Lord honors him in the face of his enemies. He gives him victory over his enemies. He exalts him and provides for him and feeds him and serves him and welcomes him in the face of his enemies. And again, some of us might, might have somewhat of an aversion to the notion that God exalts his people. After all, you know, of course, aren't we supposed to be the ones who exalt God? His exalting his people may seem sort of backward to us. And yet, scriptures repeatedly speak of how the Lord is the exalter of his people. Not in the sense that he worships his people, but in the sense that he places them in a position of honor in his kingdom. As Hannah says in 1 Samuel 2.8, the Lord raises up the poor and needy from the ash heap and makes them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Indeed, the Lord says himself in 1 Samuel 2.30, those who honor me, I will honor. This concept is then repeated in, in the New Testament. Both James and Peter say that for those who humble themselves before the Lord, he will exalt them. That's James 4.10 and 1 Peter 5.6. And then not only does he, does he exalt his people, but he exalts his people to the place of highest honor and privilege imaginable. As Paul says of our position in Ephesians 2.6, in our union with Christ, God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in his throne room, at his right hand. He has welcomed his people into the glory of his own presence in the highest of heaven, to the most dignified and exalted place that a human being could possibly be. You see, the Lord is the exalter of his people. When we humble ourselves before him, he lifts us out of the ash heap of our sin and shame, and he lifts us up to a position of honor and victory over our enemies. Like Tom Bombadil rescued the hobbits from the willow tree. Our God rescues us from the entanglements of sin, from the accusations of Satan, from the shame and condemnations of our consciences, from even the finality of death. He gives us victory. And exalts us. He brings us into his home. He treats us as his honored guests around his table while our enemies look on and cannot do us any harm. Of course, we would be right to ask, on what basis does God do this for us? Why does he exalt his people and give them victory over sin and shame, Satan and death? There's no other basis and no other reason other than the person and work of Jesus Christ. We as, as sinful and broken humanity are undeserving of God's honorable welcome into his house and exalted seat at his table. And yet our being welcome isn't contingent upon our worthiness, but upon the worthiness of Christ. He is our worthiness. He is the one who earned a seat at the table for us. He is the one who died in our place to secure it. He is the one who rose again on the third day and sent the Holy Spirit to empower us to receive his gracious invitation. 
He is the basis on which God welcomes us, serves us, and exalts us at his table. And now by way of application, before we conclude, I'd like to exhort you to remember this welcome, this this service, this exaltation, especially in those times and in those moments when you're feeling accused and ashamed in your conscience. Remember that you've been seated in this place of honor at his heavenly table when you feel accused or ashamed. Especially in our current season, I know that many of us might have a little more time in our hands. And, and sometimes that can, give us, that can give opportunity to a, a voice of shame, a voice of accusation to be kind of amplified in our minds. We might have a little more space to recall our, our pasts with all of our horrible sins we've committed. We might have a little more time to reflect on, on the wrongs done to us, which embarrass us or make us feel dirty or unclean. So if you find yourself regularly being reminded that you don't measure up because of something you've done or something done to you, if, if, if you find yourself feeling defiled or dirty because of something done to you, if you find yourself feeling disgraced because of something associated with you, if, if you find yourself feeling like an outcast, worthless, a failure, not acceptable, that you're a mistake, if you find yourself dealing, struggling with a a continued and lingering sense of guilt in your soul. The best thing you can do when the volume gets turned up on the voice of accusation and shame in your mind is to remember that in Christ, God has prepared a table for you in the presence of your enemies. He has welcomed you. He has served you. He has exalted you. He has welcomed you into his house as his guest of honor. Remembrance of God's welcome and exaltation of you is the best weapon against the voice of accusation and shame in your life. Martin Luther gives this very same counsel in his commentary in Galatians. For when we hear the voice of the enemy accusing us and trying to shame us, he says, when the devil accuses us and says, you are a sinner and therefore damned, we should answer, no, for I fly to Christ who gave himself for my sins. Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by setting forth the greatness of my sins and try to bring me into heaviness, distrust, and despair. Listen to this, he's so punk rock. He says, on the contrary, when you say I am a sinner, you give me armor and weapons against yourself so that with your own sword, I may cut your throat and tread you under my feet for Christ died for sinners. As often as you object that I am a sinner, so often you remind me of the benefit of Christ, my redeemer, on whose shoulders and not on mine lie all my sins. So when you say I'm a sinner, You do not terrify me, but comfort me immeasurably. Indeed, remember this when feeling accused, when feeling ashamed, when the voice of the enemy, when the voice of accusation and shame is amplified in your life. Christ has died for you as a sinner, and he has given you an exalted seat at the Lord's table. The Lord treats his people like a gracious host treats his honored Yes, the table is fully prepared for you. There is heavenly bread for your nourishment. There is an abundance of wine for your joy. And Christ has done everything needful for you to be welcome. Only humble yourself before your gracious host. Recognize your need. Receive his welcome and his invitation, and he will exalt you in the presence of your enemies. Remember this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, seal this word upon our hearts and help us to be humbled before you.
that we might be exalted in your presence and by your hand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.